Hello, I'm Andrew Suskind, and I'm a psychotherapist and author based in West Los Angeles since 1992, specializing in trauma and addictions. Welcome to our podcast, which I call It's Not About the Sex, also the title of my recent book. Here we focus on all topics related to compulsive sexual behavior, often referred to as sex addiction. In particular, we explore ways to build long-term sustainable recovery while establishing more meaningful connection and greater intimacy. Our intention is to offer fresh viewpoints, brand new perspectives, and practical user-friendly tools toward living a more deeply connected life. Let's get started. Today, I am super excited to have my colleague and friend, Robbie Abels, with us all the way from Sydney, Australia. And Robbie is really one of the inspirations in my brain spotting training and in my brain spotting life. And I'm just so pleased that you could be with us today. So, so welcome, welcome, welcome. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure, Andrew. Thank you. It, it's terrific. And, and when I see you, even at this distance, I feel like we are right <laughs> next door here. But uh, the, the wonders of technology have brought us together today. So I'm very grateful for that. So the upside of Zoom. That's right. That's right. We're we're so <laughs> fortunate. I mean, a few years ago it wouldn't even be possible to do such a thing. So here we are. Yes. So yes. to get started today, I, I thought we would start with some basic ideas around addiction. Okay. Since most yep. of our listeners are here listening to us because of their addictive compulsive behaviors, maybe from their past or maybe current. And there's there's such myths and misconceptions out there. And I was wondering if we could spend a moment talking about addiction in terms of why people can't stop, why there's such a difficulty stopping. Is it a lack of willpower? Well, Andrew, I think that's the million dollar question is why can't people stop once they start? Um, and I think what's not understood is that there are certain chemical reactions happening, happening in people's brain when they ingest substances that create the need to have more of the substance. And um, it's nothing to do with willpower. And unfortunately, a lot of treatment for addiction in the past has gone on the assumption that it is willpower that's needed and then people relapse. So this, that's a basic misunderstanding of the neuroscience of what's happening inside the brain of the addicted person. The word neuroscience is exciting to me and at the same time overwhelms me in some ways, but I was wondering if, <laughs> if you could share a little bit more about what you mean by the neuroscience of what we're learning. When someone is in craving, so for any behavior, and it doesn't need to be methamphetamines or sex, um, it could be working or sugar or any compulsive behavior that um, they're sort of stuck in. Um, when they're in the craving or the desire to move towards that behavior, a part of the brain that holds the consequences, the negative consequences for that, is completely out of their capacity to connect to. 
So when they want to smoke a cigarette, for example, or act out sexually or um, get drunk, the part of the brain that holds the consequences, the negative consequences, are completely blocked off from them. It's like a huge steel door slams shut. And all the reasons why the diabetic shouldn't be having that sugar is not available to them in that moment. And I think that if you have had that experience yourself where you, you know, you may have wanted that piece of chocolate cake or you may have wanted that one more thing or stay at work another two hours, you just can't drag yourself away. Um, it's only once you have left that or satiated that desire that you remember all your consequences and why this was something that you're trying not to do. So there are different parts of the brain that are operating in opposition to each other. And that's part of what we have to consider when we're trying to help people stop their addictive behaviors. Thank you for, for sharing that in a user-friendly way, first of all. And I'm wondering if you agree with the idea that, that the brain gets hijacked, because I think sometimes people will talk about the hijacking of the brain. Is that what we're talking about here? Well, I think hijacking's one word for it, for sure. Um, the, it's, the human brain seeks reward. So we are pleasure and reward-seeking species. So our brain wants us to have more of things that we have um, labeled good or rewarding or nice or fun. So um, even to the detriment of other parts of our brain, which say that's actually really bad for you. So this is the same system I was just talking about, is that when one part of your brain wants a certain reward, another part of it's sort of like the good angel on your shoulder and the little devil on your shoulder. That's kind of what's happening in your brain. Mm -hmm. So that the little angel on your shoulder is saying, no, no, this is really not good for you. This is going to ruin your life. And the little devil on your shoulder is saying, oh, she's ridiculous. Don't listen to that. Just one more won't hurt. It'll be different this time. So it, it is a kind of hijacking by these different parts of the brain. And the one that wins usually is the one that steers you towards more of the reward. Sure. The one that says no loses most of the time. Right. Not as powerful. Right. So we are pleasure-seeking creatures. And sometimes it can lead to dangerous consequences. And sometimes it can lead to very beautiful, fortifying experiences. But what I would like to know as we're talking about this is that we're really looking at the complexities of addiction, right? Yes. And, and, and so nowadays we don't look at addiction in a vacuum anymore. Right. And so I'm wondering if you can speak more to how we see addiction and, and how we're, we're, how that relates to the approach to healing and recovery. So we used to see addiction more as sort of a, just arising out of a vacuum, sort of like, you know, cancer. It just happened to you one day um, without any predisposing events that we could tie to it. So uh, there was a study done by Kaiser Permanente Insurance Company in the United States 
um, they wanted to know if they could predict who in their insured um, uh, clients, could they predict who would later get serious health conditions, mental health conditions uh, and physical health conditions. And they interviewed 17,000 of their insured members. And what they found out was mind blowing to the medical industry and also to the addiction world. What they found was the more bad, basically to put it in very simple language, the more situations that happened to you as a child before the age of 18 that were out of your control and that were disturbing to you in some way, the more of those you had, the higher the likelihood you would have physical health and mental health and addiction issues after the age of 18. Very high correlation. So there was a study and it was only 10 questions and it was sort of what's happening, what happened in your home before you turned 18. And it included things, all different things about different types of abuse. It included the mental health status of your parents, um, whether or not your parents were divorced, whether or not someone was incarcerated, those kinds of things. Um, and it, we know now that people who answered four out of 10 as a yes answer to those questions have, um, at least a four times greater uh, chance of becoming an addict of some type um, before after the age of 18. Hmm. So we didn't used to see this correlation, hmm. that there's something in the past that's triggering the need for the person to somehow manage how they feel internally, emotionally and mentally. Hmm. So now we're in the ballpark of looking at addiction and trauma. Yes, they are inseparable. Correct. And it's so interesting because you and I know that 20, 25 years ago, nobody put it all together. It seems like it's just newer information right. that's now common. But, yes. but I wanted to talk about brain spotting because I think that's what our listeners yep. are here to, to understand today because Brain spotting is one of those approaches to trauma or, or really to anything that's too much to process at the time yes. that, that happens to us and, and gets stored. And I'm wondering if, if you could share an overview of what brain spotting means to you or how you would describe it to the average person. So I think the way I understand it, and I have to explain it to myself as an average person because I'm not very good with big um, fancy words, but um, basically what happens in your brain is you have the capacity to heal yourself on many levels. So a simple explanation would be if you get a splinter in your finger because, um, you know, you catch it on something wood and you get a little piece of wooden splinter in your finger and your body somehow by scanning itself, it finds that there's something in your body that shouldn't be there. And it works to push out that splinter and then heal over that little access spot so that you can never find like where that splinter was a couple of weeks later, you forget, you can't see, there's no scar, nothing. So what we're seeing now is that the brain has the same capacity to do that with anything in the, in the brain that is held there um, in unhealed form, just like that splinter in your finger. 
So that given the right conditions, which is brain spotting accesses, we, your brain can find that little splinter in your brain and do the healing work um, that it's very well equipped to do uh, without overwhelming the person in the process of doing that. Is that understandable? No, that's absolutely. I, I'm wondering if we can add some context okay. because I think all of us who have entered into the brain spotting community, and if I didn't say this before, Robbie is an international brain spotting trainer and specifically uh, does a lot of trainings around addictions. And so I'm wondering, Robbie, how, how you heard about brain spotting and, and what, what about it really attracted you? I heard about brain spotting when I went to an EMDR conference in Montreal in Canada. So EMDR is another therapy that was developed to help people resolve trauma. And there was a, a trainer, EMDR trainer there, David Grand from New York, who I knew well. And he was talking a little bit about brain spotting to me. And I asked him to explain brain spotting to me in about two sentences. And um, once you know what brain spotting is, you realize what a ridiculous question I asked him. <laughs> you can't really explain brain spotting in two sentences. So he said to me, look, why don't I just give you a session right here, right now, in the middle of the product hall at this EMDR conference? So um, I was like, yeah, sure, okay. Um, it was kind of like the end of day of the conference. And... Um, I had sort of made a connect, nice connection with a fellow there who I quite liked and was hoping that would turn into something later. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and uh, David Grant said to me, so when think of a, an issue you want to work on and you don't have to tell me what it is. So that's another one of the beautiful things about brain spotting is that if you've told your story so many times to a therapist and you cannot stand the idea of having to say the story all again, you don't need to tell anything about the story to your therapist. So because all the information is in my brain, I know all the context, I know all the stories. And so we know now all that's important is that the information is inside the client. So David asked me when, and I thought, well, what will I work on? So um, I'm an adopted person and have worked on my abandonment issues for at that point, like 30 years or whatever it was. And I uh, thought, okay, I'll work on my abandonment issue. But when I first told this story, I forgot to say that I had worked on it for about 20 to 30 years prior. Mm. Anyway, so David said, where in your body do you feel any sort of anything when you think about your abandonment issue? Mm -hmm. And I think it was like a pressure in my chest. And then he helped me find an eye position, so a spot in the visual, my visual field, mm -hmm. that when I looked at that specific spot, the feeling in my chest became even more intense. So that I felt that there was a connection between that eye position and the, the, the somatic, the physical feeling in my chest, this gripping in my chest. So he just said, just keep looking there. Just notice what comes and goes in your mind. and um, I'll check back in with you in a little bit. Anyway, so this fellow kept walking between me and this, this eye position, this spot on the wall opposite, and we were supposed to go to dinner afterwards. <laughs> so um, 
And he had no idea what I was doing because I just sort of plonked myself down at the, on this chair and he's waiting to go to dinner and I'm staring at a wall, <laughs> ignore, ignoring him. <laughs> With David sort of wandering backwards and forwards, asking me what I'm noticing now and keep going. Anyway, so the conference wrapped up and I had to leave and I went to dinner with this fellow. And we're coming back to the hotel in the taxi and um, he's, and I had invited him to Australia for Christmas and said, why don't you come for Christmas? It's a beautiful time of year. It's our summer, as you know. Um, it'll be fun. Anyway, so in the taxi on the way back to the hotel, he says, um, oh, Robbie, by the way, um, I won't be coming to Sydney for Christmas. And I'm like, oh. I'm sort of, you know, doing the thing with the dog, putting its head on the <laughs> side going, mm? <laughs> not understand. And he said, oh, because I have a partner back home. So, yeah, this, mm. <laughs> Andrew's making right. a face of like. I'm mm. sad. <laughs> yeah. So we've all sort of, you know, well, maybe not all of us, but many of us have had that experience. So in the, and I felt disappointed and a bit irritated that he had not mentioned this. And when I got out of the car, I thought, oh, my God, normally I would have gone into an abyss of darkness and crying and like, oh, my God, like so. But it was and I thought I've just had like a level two reaction to a level two event, which I'd never been able to have before. Wow. So and I had done a lot of work previously. But this seemed to be like the thing that really wrapped it up in my brain in a way that was really adaptive. And I now respond to these things like someone who did never have an abandonment issue. Mm. And I find that extraordinary. I mean, I've been a therapist for over 35 years. And this was impossible to get to with people, you know. People would come for these issues and we would work really hard and it would get somewhat better, but not all the way Mm. resolved. So I called David and said, "Um, when are you teaching this? I'm hooked. And he had one coming up in about two weeks in Chicago. And this was in 2004. Mm. So I've been doing brain spotting since this is my 17th year. I never heard that story. That's fantastic. What I want to emphasize is is that David Grand is the founder of Brain Spotting. He has trained yes. brain spotters on every continent and dozens and dozens and dozens of countries. Yes. And it's a beautiful yes. door that you describe because on a personal level in your nervous system you you had well you had an opportunity to experience brain spotting from the developer of brain spotting and and the part yes. that i think is so important to highlight is that your response to the gentleman who had a partner at home was proportional to what yes happened rather than some heavy duty overwhelming um historical kind of uh, and hysterical experience. and h- historical and hysterical <laughs> exactly <laughs> So, wow. Yes, right. and because really, like, nothing other than what was happening in my mind where right. this could have gone had happened with this person. Like, it was so nothing. Yeah. But in the past, I really would have gone into, you know, 
sobbing that this didn't work out. Right, right. So, um, so you knew that this was a very different response that you were having. And, 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 yeah. and it was so exciting that obviously you contacted David and eventually became a yes. trainer yourself. So and here we are. Here we are. That's right. A few <laughs> years later. The, and... other, the other part of the question you asked me um, is, you know, what about it other than, so that's my personal experience. Sure. Right? So then there's like a professional experience, which mm -hmm. is um, part of the story that we tell when we teach brain spotting is about David's client who David Grand, the developer of brain spotting, has a lot of people in his practice who are elite athletes and entertainers. So he does like high performance work with people, performance expansion work. And he had a young lady who was an ice skater and um, professional ice skater. And he had done over a year and a half of um, EMDR, his, his specific way of using EMDR with athletes with this young lady. And she could not land what's called a triple loop so apparently a triple loop is something that you have to put into every performance that you do. It's sort of a base, fairly basic uh, jump. Uh, she could do things much, much more challenging, but that one she would always mess it up. So David um, Grant had spoken to Peter Levine, who developed somatic experiencing, which is a beautiful body-oriented therapy also to help heal with shock trauma. So Peter Levine had said to David, because in EMDR, people, people's eyes follow like moving fingers in front of their face. And Peter Levine said to David, you have to slow that down. That's way too fast for the body to be able to keep tracking. And David moved his hand slower. And Peter said, no, slower still, almost not moving or even not moving. So David was doing an EMDR session with this young ice skater and he's sort of moving his two fingers across her field of vision at eye level while she's thinking of something that was disturbing for her. And all of a sudden he saw her eyes wobble and then stare straight ahead. And he, he, the true story, which you're getting, is that he felt something grab his wrist and stop his hand from moving so that it was a stationary eye position that this young lady was looking at rather than one that was moving even slowly. So it was completely fixed eye position. And in the next half an hour, all these trauma memories that had never come up before in her EMDR sessions with David, who was an incredibly good EMDR therapist, um, everything that they had gotten down to like zero activation now when I think of that thing it feels fine for me now those things came up and reopened these images reopened and there was more unprocessed emotional material underneath what they had finished in sessions previously so that under the zero which means I, you know, when I think of that, I feel neutral now. There were these underlying other zeros, sort of like the iceberg in the water. So I was fascinated because in EMDR, I was an EMDR therapist also. We would stop at that first zero, I feel fine, everything's neutral. 
with brain spotting, we keep going because it's a we do like a proper house cleaning. So we it, apparently it goes into all the corners and cobwebs and everything and gets it all until you get a, a really so um, completely non-triggered anymore neutral when I think of that issue. And it was went far deeper than anything that EMDR had been able to do with my clients. So I was hooked. I was absolutely hooked. This was incredible. That's fantastic. I want to remind our listeners that it's not easy to describe brain spotting in words. And um, David Grand has a very informative website that has videos and a lot of information. It's, it's simply www.brainspotting.com. So um, that would be one way of actually getting a better sense of what it actually looks like. But I, I, I think your examples, both the personal example, Robbie, and then the one with the figure skater is, is so great. What I would like to segue toward is your desire and passion around addictions and around what you call the crocodile setup, which is something that I trained with Robbie in. It, it, th- we're going to, in a few minutes, we're going to be talking about uh, the crocodile in, in um, a very, very concentrated way. I spent a weekend with Robbie as my teacher, and, um, and, I, and then I've still been practicing it and learning it and expanding upon it. So Robbie, in whatever way feels right to you, if you can talk about how you decided to develop this particular approach and how it helps those who are dealing with addictive compulsive issues. Uh, I had a client who um, was in recovery from his um, drug and alcohol addiction. Um, But every six years, he would relapse. So he had come to me, he'd had six years and a relapse, six years clean and sober, another relapse, six years clean and sober, and then he came to see me. And um, he wanted to not relapse again, which had been his pattern. And what he was doing was um, he was in a 12-step program and what he was doing was sexting uh, new newcomer women to the meetings. And his wife knew about it and she was furious. And he told me a story about how she had come into his bathroom, which was all glass, the shower. He was in the shower. And she had slammed his phone into the glass of the shower, luckily not breaking it, where there was another sext message that she had found. And um, he said, yes, I felt very vulnerable naked in that glass shower with my wife screaming. And I said, so, okay, so then he wanted to work on this sexting. And I said to him, well, what are the consequences for you? And he said, no, 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 Robbie, I don't have consequences. My wife doesn't like it. And I thought, well, that's fascinating because he's just told me a story about how vulnerable he felt, yet he doesn't see that as a consequence. So I said to him, and I'd worked with him on some other issues, and I said to him, would you help me work out with brain spotting a way to connect in your brain this behaviour that you're doing to your consequences? Because I had the idea that there were two separate islands in his brain that were not talking to one another when they should be. And so he helped me figure out this, what we came to call the crocodile setup. 
I started um, using the metaphor of a crocodile for the addiction. Oops. Um, because the crocodile is a predator and an ambush hunter and slowly watches people and watches patterns um, so that it can have a plan of attack and know where you are going to be before you get there so that it can be ready to grab you. So that's why with a lot of um, people who are addicted to something, there are certain people, places and things which tend to be more dangerous for them than other people, places and things. And so the idea is that the crocodile knows those people, places and things and gets there before you get there to wait for you and ambush you. So I figured out with this client um, that we would um, find an eye position and that's what brain spotting is about. We find an eye position that correlates to what you feel in your body when you think about something like when you think about wanting to sext, do sexting. What do you feel in your body? That sort of excitement that comes into your chest, maybe, or something like that. Um, and we find an eye position that helps um, increase that feeling in the chest. And then we, I needed to find another eye position that correlated to his consequences, of which he had many, and I won't go into them all. Um, but it, it, it was start, it affected his work, it affected his marriage, it affected his relationships with his children, it affected his relationships with his um, recovery community. So he really had a lot of these consequences, which he just could not see were his, which I found fascinating. So I developed this certain way of using brain spotting where we created what I think is a new um, like a, a passageway that goes from these two islands and connects them, a walkway. So that when he's on one island, he can, he can be really aware of the consequences on the other island. Um, and what we found was that just that gave him a huge advantage when he would go into craving or wanting to do this behavior. He was so aware of the consequences that the behavior just lost its reward for him. And I've done this with lots and lots of people with um, substance abuse, with more behavioral kinds of um, compulsive behaviors, um, food disorders, cutting issues. And it's seems that what it does, it connects the wanting to do the behavior with the consequences mm. of why they don't want to do the behavior, mm -hmm. which gives them this huge advantage. So going back to what you were sharing earlier about pleasure seeking, if I'm hearing you correctly, it speaks to the idea that when somebody is pleasure seeking and then there's these consequences, the crocodile setup of brain spotting actually helps the brain click into the consequences more readily and therefore the pleasure seeking diminishes it kind of ruins the pleasure seeking for you yeah it does ruin it <laughs> yeah but i think there's something so powerful about what you're saying because in general when it comes to cravings and urges and compulsions mm -hmm. there's something so stubborn sometimes yeah. about those things and 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 yet what i hear you working on with your clients and i've seen this with my clients as well is is that there's that possibility of 
of somehow it you're right it kind of ruins it it kind of contaminates that pleasure seeking yeah. path okay that's yes yeah because i think when we're in the pleasure seeking we're kind of in a trance you know when we're walking to the fridge to get that cake you know the next piece of cake we're sort of in a trance we're not really present in ourselves as we were as we are you know 30 minutes after we have the cake we're much more present um so i think it has the ability to pull us back out of this trance that we go into when we want a reward but part of us knows it's really unhealthy for us um we just go into this floaty place um, you know, some people call it dissociative, but it's kind of like this floaty trance place where you're just, before you know it, your hand's in the fridge and the cake's in your mouth. And then you go, whoa, I wasn't going to eat that. What happened? And um, so <clears throat> when we do this brain spotting crocodile setup to join them together, the minute you have the thought, I want that cake, you also have the thought simultaneously about, your blood sugar level if it's in it you know like i've done this with people with diabetes <clears throat> and so really the sugar addiction is really life-threatening um so but they can instantly see you know their last sugar reading in their mind or i did it with a client who um had a pretty severe cocaine addiction and was in the entertainment industry over there in the us and um one of the things that was his consequence was, um, and excuse me for the squeamish, but when you do too much cocaine, you can get blood clots that come out of your nose. So right. that was one of his consequences, was pulling these blood clots out of his nose from having too much cocaine and feeling that their bone um, up in between his eyes, the bone was already being eaten away by the cocaine. And so he mm -hmm. went to a party and was offered a bowl of cocaine and when he looked at the bowl of cocaine, the image that came into his head was himself pulling these blood clots out of his nose. And he just went, oh, no, I'm not having that. Right. So that gives the person with um, a compulsive, but any compulsive have a huge advantage because then you really can sort of say yes or no to it. When you're fully informed in the moment, you can do it, but this is what it's doing to you. You have a better um, advantage over that crocodile who's sitting there sort of shoving that bowl of cocaine at your face. Um, right. You can say, you know, no, that's that's not what I want. I do not want mm. my face collapsing and, you know, not be able to work. Mm -hmm. I, I really appreciate the idea of the trance because what you're saying is the, the healing arc is – getting out of the trance. Yes. And if somebody's able in this example that you gave to really know on a deeper level that they have the awareness that they don't want those blood clots coming out of their nose anymore, then it 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 really the the trance vanishes basically. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's it's I'm a recovering addict and alcoholic myself as mm -hmm. well. And I'm, this is my 35th year clean wow. and sober. Mm -hmm. But it really is like invasion of the body snatchers. <laughs> you know, that um, 
I, it's really like, you know, I would say to myself, okay, I am not going to drink. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to drink. And then I'd well, just one drink <clears throat> and then two drinks. And then I'd say, oh, I may as well go out now. You know, this is when I was a younger person. Mm. I may as well go out now and find some friends and go drinking. And it would always end badly. Mm-hmm. But every single, every other day, I would have the idea, I'm not going to drink. I'll just one drink. Oh, just two drinks. Oh, I'd may as well go out and find my friends. And it would always end badly. And that went on for eight years. But see, there was no connection in my brain when I wanted to have that first drink to how badly this always ended. Mm -hmm. And I mean badly, like raped, beaten, Mm -hmm. car accidents, Mm -hmm. badly. But there was, it's not enough to stop the part of my brain that wants the reward. Mm-hmm. And the reward is I had terrible anxiety um, from a childhood of a lot of disruption and parents who were Holocaust survivors. My mother was mentally ill. My father was pretty much absent and then di- they got divorced. Um, so I had a lot of uh, anxiety as a child that I did not have any way to manage, nor did I have an adult to help me understand what was happening or sit with me or explain mm-hmm. to me what was happening. So I discovered um, initially that cough medicine, which at the time had a lot of uh, alcohol and codeine in it, really helped me calm down. Mm. So this is where what happens in addiction is that people sort of stumble into some kind of behavior or substance or activity that helps their nervous system, mm-hmm. which is too anxious or too depressed right. or too lonely, um, to feel better for a period of time. Mm -hmm. And then the brain releases dopamine. So people may have heard of dopamine. Mm -hmm. So here's another interesting thing about addiction. Mm -hmm. Dopamine in the brain, originally, we would get a big hit of dopamine when we were nomadic people wandering the earth. Our brains would get a big hit of dopamine when we stumbled upon, for example, a lake of fresh water. Mm or like a flock or a a herd of wildebeest. So this release of dopamine into the brain tells the brain what you are seeing and doing now has survival value. Mm. So that when our tribe comes through here again next spring, we'll have a greater chance of finding this fresh water and this food. Mm -hmm. So because we need it for survival. So dopamine tells the brain to file whatever lights it up in the file that says needed for survival. Mm. So unfortunately, when we get a reward from any kind of, you know, sex or alcohol or drugs or whatever it is, we get a huge hit of dopamine, which pushes that into the file in the brain labeled necessary for survival. Wow. Wow. That's a huge problem Mm, mm. because that's what, you know, when you see what people are willing to do to get their substance or go through with their behavior, the degradation, the horror that that people create Mm, and have done mm -hmm. to them yet compulsively continue to go back and go back and do it again and again. Mm -hmm. When I found out this piece of information, then it finally made sense. It's like the brain thinks this is oxygen. Mm -hmm. This is the equivalent of oxygen. So I will 
steal. I'll steal. I'll, you know, do what I'll sell myself. I'll do whatever's necessary because my brain thinks if I don't get that alcohol, mm -hmm. I'm going to die. Mm -hmm. And that's what it feels like as an addict. Mm -hmm. I have to have this right. or I'm going to die. Right. And it's because the brain is reading it incorrectly as necessary for survival. So the brain won't give up something that it considers necessary for survival without some kind of good reason. Mm -hmm. So in the crocodile setup, that's why you'll remember, Andrew, mm -hmm. that we do the third spot, the brain spot. Yes which I developed for this reason. So the brain is not willing to give up a reward or something it considers necessary for survival until it has something of equal or greater value. So I thought, well, we have to give that to the brain. How do we do that? So um, I ask the person to imagine a time in the future when they are completely free of this behaviour whatever it is. And it's often very difficult for people to imagine that. Mm -hmm. So so we can just put future language, right. which is, you know, someday, maybe far in the future, mm -hmm. there's a possibility that perhaps mm -hmm. you could be free. And we just need to find one little cell in your body that thinks that's possible. Mm -hmm. And usually you can find one little cell. And then we do in brain spotting what we call an expansion, mm. which is we just let that little spot expand. So the whole body can start to have the experience. Mm. And what happens, people start to get an image mm -hmm. of what that looks like, yeah. what it feels like, what it smells like, what it tastes like there. And then we just let that expand even more. So it really mm -hmm. feels like they're there. Mm -hmm. and um, Which becomes a resource then, of, of sorts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, well, then the, the person's body feels fabulous. They get a hit of dopamine. Right. It goes into the file that says necessary for survival. Um, and then the body wants that more. Mm -hmm. That becomes the reward that the brain wants you to have mm -hmm. rather than the six pack of beer or whatever it was. Sure. So there was a therapist who did this with someone who just wanted to do um, – just wanted to limit his drinking to a six pack mm. of beer a night, mm. no more. And um, for whatever reason, she couldn't do the first two that we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. So she remembered this one. Uh -huh. And so she did this with him. Imagine your life when you're free of this. Mm -hmm. And he could do that. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, all these connections, he reconnected in his mind, you know, with children, grandchildren, how amazing it was, how much fun they had. And he said, you know, if only if the only thing I had to do was not even drink that six pack, this would be worth it to me. Mm -hmm. So his brain found something that went in as a huge hit of dopamine mm -hmm. as necessary for survival. Mm -hmm. And then th the drinking the six pack became the block to the survival. Right. Right. So then you can't have that six-pack. You don't mm -hmm. want that six-pack mm -hmm. because that will stop me getting what I really want. Right. And that all connected in his brain and he, did, and he didn't drink anymore. Mm -hmm. Now, it doesn't happen that quickly for everybody, mm -hmm. but there's certainly lots and lots of cases where it does. Sure. As you probably know with your clients. Yeah, yeah. I could talk for hours about this with you, Robbie. I, I wanted to just share that one of the things I love about brain spotting and one of the things I love about the crocodile setup is that 
nothing is set in stone, that it's a very flexible model. And we really are the tail of the comet. We are following the Mm -hmm. client's nervous system and not making any assumptions and and sometimes just being creative and, and going with what seems to be happening in the moment. And I, I, I just so appreciate, um, on so many levels, I so appreciate you and your contributions, the brain spotting community. Uh, we have a Facebook, very active Facebook, uh, community for brain spotting and addictions. And, um, it, it, all I can say is you're a gem and I so appreciate you being with us today. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much. It's lovely to see you, even if it's virtually. Exactly. Hope to see you soon. Oh, me too. Thank you. Hopefully sooner rather than later. Thank you for listening today. It was an absolute pleasure sharing this time with my super talented colleague and friend, Robbie Abels, and discussing this really significant topic that, that affects those affected by compulsive sexual behavior. Robbie can be reached through her website at brainspottingaustraliapacific.com.au. Be sure to give us a five-star rating on iTunes, or please share our podcast on Spotify. If there are topics you'd like us to discuss in the future, please let me know. I look forward to you joining us on future podcasts, and thanks again for being with us today.